I don't believe in a God who hates sin just enough to punish people for it forever and ever and ever. I believe in a God who hates sin so much that he will finally and forever eradicate all sin from the universe. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? (laughs) Okay, that one I'm super embarrassed about. (laughs) Do you like me? Do I like you? Yeah. As as an individual or as a podcast? Yeah, as a person. No, I like you. Okay, cool, cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't bowed a Nebuchadnezzar statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. Hey, hey, this is Lynn Stroy. All right, this is an episode for church history buffs and people interested in the finer points of theology, including eschatology, which is basically the theology that tackles the question of what will happen in the end and where will people go? Our main guest is Chris Date. Now, if there was a scale from one to 10 of how serious people take the Bible, Chris is definitely at a 10. For those of you super excited to nerd out on some theological discourse today, you probably know well the terms inerrancy and infallibility. Chris upholds both in regard to scripture. If you don't know what those terms mean, you are about to find out. Anyway, remember in last week's episode when Pastor Greg talked about people or groups of people and denominations who put certain beliefs and convictions in the category of essentials when they don't belong there and then shout heretics to those who have a disagreement when there's truly room for disagreement and no reason to divide over? Well, this conversation tackles one of those beliefs that at least at Seacoast, you can have differing views on while still being united through those essential beliefs established by the early church. So Chris Date believes in the essentials of Christianity and believes strongly that those who do not accept God's plan of salvation through Jesus are completely destroyed forever, as opposed to the traditional belief in most Christian circles that people stay alive forever in conscious misery. His belief is referred to as annihilationist point of view. Let me explain. It's pretty simple. You know the passage that says, the wages of sin is death. While most read a passage like this and process the word death more figuratively, likening it to a spiritual death that happens forever while you are conscious, Chris says, no, it's real death. You are destroyed, never to come back to life. So when Chris hears the phrase eternal punishment, to him, it means one is eternally punished by being eternally dead. And those who accept Jesus are the only ones who will live forever anywhere. And you'll never guess what Chris is labeled as by a lot of Christians. You guessed it, he's a heretic. After hearing Chris's take, I think most will agree that his belief on hell has to, at the very least, be on the table of possibilities. And you'll find when listening, it's not despite what scripture teaches, but greatly due to what scripture does seem to teach in many places. And you'll hear that Chris is pretty much fully convinced of his view. And he's a smart guy, so it'll be interesting to hear what others will think about his take. But first, Jack is super excited about a host discussion on church history because it is his jam. It's what his master's degree is in. Joey asking Jack to come on the podcast and breach this topic is liking to asking a dog if he wants a bone or asking a church kid from the 90s if they want to go to a DC talk concert or asking a young kid from the 90s if they want to watch Barney. Oh my gosh, Joey has like five more of these. He better edit some of this out. All right. What's up, guys? Hey. Hey. What's going on? Why are you going to say it like that? What, what do you, you mean? Said, hey. I didn't... 
Oh, you thought I was mocking you? Yeah. No, I don't think that you were. <laughs> That's what happened. All right. So, Jack, you have an epic first name. Have you? Has anybody what? ever told you that before? What are you talking about? Your name. All right. So, check this out. I'm sure there's a lot more Josephs and Joeys than Jacks in this world, but yeah. Jack, check this out. Your minds are going to be blown. I'm going <laughs> to... I wish people could see Jack's face right now. I'm going to jack you up. You ain't Jack. Uh, you know what? Uh-huh. Jack and Jill, Jack be nimble. Yeah. Uh, don't go Jack or whatever Rose yeah, yeah. said on the Titanic. Jack a lantern. Yeah. There's a game called Jacks. Uh-huh. I never learned how to play, but there's a game called Jacks. Flapjacks, Jack in a box, toy or restaurant. Jack Nicholson, <laughs> Jack Black, Jack Dempsey for old boxing fans. Yep. Am I making my point? Yes. All right. I well, thought, no. I mean, I, thought, I don't know where your point is. I thought about the same thing for my name. I came up with baby kangaroo, a former burrito at Moe's, and the guy from Friends. That's it. Jack is epic. That's a lot of stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, Jack is a well-used name out well, there. Well, but, you know, until kind of recently not for children. Like, one of the jokes, like, used to be, it's not true anymore, but when I was growing up, one of the jokes kind of was, Jack is the most popular name that no one really has. Like <laughs> Exactly. Because it's like, it's, you know, for all time, it's a nickname for John. Who, who knows why, but like, C.S. Lewis went by Jack. and Or like, Jack Ryan. JFK, the right? Books. JFK, That's what I'm saying, Jack right. Kennedy. Jack Kennedy. And so, actually, when I was born, you know, the nurse came in and said, like, birth certificate, kind of like, what's the name? And mom said, Jack. And the nurse said, oh, no, you mean John. Jack's a nickname. <laughs> <laughs> and mom said, no. I mean, Jack. And the nurse kind of was like, I'm going to put John. And mom was like, are you serious? Listen. Oh, my gosh. Like, talking to the mom? Yes. Lord. I was like, well, I was, you know, it was like 40 years ago, so I don't know. But uh, <laughs> nurses were more uppity back then or something. Jack is a nickname. But, but yeah, and so it, it does cause issues sometimes. Or I have had people be like, oh, Jack's my name too. And I usually say, is it though? <laughs> because I don't, I'm sorry, but if your, your name is John, your name is not Jack. I'm a real stickler about this. But now like, there are kids everywhere that their real name is Jack. So now it's a thing. I'm not special anymore. <laughs> you brought up when you were born, this was with my second child. There was a nurse and I think Priscilla had already had her epidural, so getting contractions and everything. And the nurse comes in there and she says, hey, I'm, I'm Nurse Happy. And Priscilla goes, what's your name again? And she's like, Nurse Happy. And yes, that's her first name. When the nurse leaves, I was like, Priscilla, do you realize you looked at her like she had the stupidest name ever and said, what's your name again? She's like, oh my gosh, I didn't. But Nurse Happy, that's her name. I guess there was a nurse grumpy and a nurse sneezy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. And don't be because she doesn't get to do any of the surgeries. Yeah, uh, that's right. Lynn, I get to learn something new about you. Do you like history? Do you consider yourself like a history buff? I wouldn't say I'm a buff, but I do like history. You do? And what, what would be your favorite time period? Oh, I don't know that. See, I'm 20th century American history. For some reason, 1900s American history, super, super interesting. You, Jack? Is there a certain period of time? Uh, there, I mean, there are periods of time that I find really interesting. But, like, no, there's not one that's like, oh, that's my oh, that's name a, stuff. Name a couple. Um, <laughs> what's well, so funny? This is a ploy. I don't understand what's so funny. To get me to say, like, really nerdy stuff and embarrass me. I know what's happening. Um, by, by the way, I, I want your honest answer here. When I reached out to you and said, hey, Lynn and I are going to be talking on the 9th, and I thought maybe we could talk some church history stuff. Did you just smile to yourself? Like, were you excited? Yeah. Well, I, so... Because this is your forte. I, 
I don't know. Like, I, you know, I don't know how this is like more like staff inside in terms of like, oh, like, you know, I'm the theology guy. It's like, I hate theology. It's like the least <laughs> interesting thing to me. Um, I just, I'm not interested in it at all. Like, I'm, the, I'm the history guy. Like, that's what my master's is in, is in church history. So yeah, I, I love talking about it. Um, late 1500s, early 1600s in Japan is really interesting. That's why I did my master. That's why I did my master's thesis on is the the Jesuit mission in Japan. I know nothing about that time period in Japan. There, almost nothing. no one does, and that was actually one of the problems I ran into um, doing research. Is that the Jesuits wrote a ton, but not a lot was translated into English. And so I actually here's something you didn't ask for. I actually somehow got chatting with the Pope's librarian <laughs> because. Like, all all these things are in Vatican, a lot of stuff's in Vatican City. So you can, I, I don't know how I figured this out, but like, Vatican City's got a website, and <laughs> the, the you can email, like, do like a contact us form for the archives, and yeah, a guy got back to me really quickly. Because no one contacts Yeah, me. right. I'm sure. I'm sure. And anyway, I like I was like, oh, I like I guess I looked up, you know, kind of who he is. I'm like, oh, this is literally the Pope's librarian. Well, that's cool. That's <laughs> helping me with my research. Yeah. So I've been surprised when I talk to people and they're like, nah, doesn't do a thing for me. So I'm gonna ask both of y'all. I'll go to Smithsonian, for instance, and I and I've got my main example is on display is Abe Lincoln's hat that he wore to the theater before he was shot. I will just stand there looking at that just dumbfounded, like just in awe. That's the hat that the 16th president was shot wearing. Blows my mind. If y'all are standing in front of a a, a mere hat, do y'all get all that, all those feels? Yes. Or it's just a, a hat? Yes. Literally, a- Yesterday, I think I was telling somebody how the Smithsonian came to be. Like, I love museums. I love, yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff. I remember the day I saw that, I saw Dorothy's slippers. And I'm like, that's what Judy Garland wore and the Wizard of Oz that I watched as a kid. Like, it's just mind-boggling. Do oh, yeah. objects do this to you? Yeah. No, of course they do. I mean, it's, it's, well, it's, it's just a connection to something. It is odd, though. Like, if I were, <laughs> if I die horribly... Don't put my stuff <laughs> like like you're like you know like um, oh my gosh I'm totally blanking on his his wife's name but you know Mrs Lincoln is holding his hand as he's dying in bed and being like listen I want you to know we're gonna put your hat where people can see it <laughs> thank you it is pretty amazing though that people thought to keep stuff you know because a lot mm-hmm. of times you don't think to keep things and so I think that's the awesome thing about history and museums is whoever thought to keep something. For posterity, right? As as one of those, I'll just I'll just say it, Lynn. It was one of those white person, black person, uncomfortable moments, and it was uncomfortable not because you were offended, but because I care about people and I never want to be insensitive. But I enjoy movies that cover the the brutal American history of actual slavery, and I think for two reasons. That time period is interesting. A lot of it was in our backyard of Charleston, but it really has helped me grapple with the reality of that. But I remember asking you if you had seen Emancipation mm-hmm. with Will Smith. You remember what you told me? Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. I will not watch it. And, and te- I mean, your I, reasons. That. And when you were telling me the reason, I was like, that makes complete sense. Yeah, and, and I, and I kind of felt like a jerk, like, hey, 
you seen him? I mean, it wasn't that tone. I was I was really burdened yeah. by the movie, but still. Yeah, yeah. It, it's because of it. Like, a, you feel that trauma in the same way that, and I can't speak for all Jewish people, but like, there are probably some people or even Holocaust survivors who don't want to watch a movie about what the trauma that they've gone through or that their grandparents have gone through. Just even the stuff that my family has still experienced because of what we've gone through. Um, I just, those kind of movies don't, they feel differently. And I don't want to watch a movie to like feel something that like my family experienced. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So Jack, I started reading a book called the first thousand years, a global history of Christianity. And if anybody's interested, it's Robert Louis Wilkin. A few things I will share that has surprised me. And Jack, given this is your expertise, feel free to push back on any of this. But this is also oh, a very this is a very reputable author. So uh, I'd be careful to go head to head with Mr. Robert Louis Wilkin. All right. So first surprise was that. And I'm, I'm curious if you're surprised too, Lynn, that Christian persecution early on was pretty sporadic. The timing of the church's birth was fortunate to happen in a time of relative peace in the Roman Empire. Because we think of the early church as just persecution constantly. Yeah, right. They're always on the run. So so first of all, um, Mary Todd, that was Lincoln's wife's name. I was, it's very important to me that people know that I do know that. <laughs> um, Mary Todd. Don't, don't edit that out, Joey. It was Mary Todd. But anyway, <laughs> that is kind of a misconception that some people, I don't know how widespread it is, have that I, I certainly had when I was kind of growing up was that uh, you sort of have this idea that persecution was always happening and that it was everywhere in the Roman Empire and that being a Christian was basically a perpetual jail sentence or death sentence. And that's really not true. The vast majority of the persecutions were local. They were brief. But I would say, like, no less terrible for that. You know, in the same way as, like, what you were talking about earlier, it's like, hey, look, you could make the case that it's like, hey, listen, during Reconstruction, you know, the horrible things that happened in the South were, you know, it wasn't universal. It's like, well, no, it wasn't, but it was still awful. And so um, I think that there is a misconception that it was always universal, that every Roman emperor was like, we've got to get these Christians, we've got to wipe them out. That's not true. What is true is that being a Christian was was, uh, often very inconvenient. And, you know, one of the things that the early Christians did, and you can read some of the letters that some of the leaders wrote to one another, one of the things that was important was, listen, um, hey, it's important that you get along with people. And one of the reasons was, so no one has a reason to make trouble for you. Is this interesting As a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's a, a letter, basically a Roman official who wrote to Rome, basically saying, hey, look, I need some guidance on the, like, what do I do with these Christians? And one of the rules that was kind of put in place was, hey, listen, no more anonymous accusations. You're not allowed to anonymously accuse people of being Christian anymore. And so one of the things that might surprise people is there were actually laws put in place by Rome that worked to protect Christians in some way. And one of which is basically like, the look, there is kind of societal breakdown. Like, imagine if anyone could accuse you of a crime totally anonymously, and you might have to suffer the consequences of that for, like, just a total anonymous accusation. It's like, no, we have the right to confront our accuser to, you know, actually, like, deal with some of that stuff. And so part of the thing was like, look, you can't just make some trouble for someone because they're a Christian. And, you know, kind of the other deal with in that letter was, hey, find out if they're a Christian, and if they are, like, ask them just to cool it. Yeah. And if they won't, then yeah, you might have to torture them a little bit. And it's just interesting. It's not like you find them and you kill them. It's like, no, it's like actually there were sort of gradations of like, hey, look, are they making trouble? If they're not, like, just leave them alone. It's really not worth trying to figure out if someone's a Christian because then you got to like carry it through. You got to have the trial and all this stuff. And that's just a pain. Yeah. Rome's problem with Christianity really had more to do with, listen, it is really difficult 
to run an empire that is comprised of so many different people groups. And so basically the deal is, you do your own thing. We're going to ask some things of everybody, no exceptions, and that's the deal. And the Christians basically said, we refuse to do the things you're asking everyone to do, like sacrifice to the emperor, you know, some of those things. And from Rome's perspective, it's basically like, why are you being so difficult? This is such a minor thing. Why are you why, why are you doing this? Why are you making this so difficult for us? From Rome's perspective, we're not asking a lot. All we want you to do, and, and it's like all we want you to do is burn a little incense to Caesar. You don't even have to mean it. Who cares? Because like Rome does not care. All Rome needs is compliance. Rome doesn't want your heart. All they want is compliance because they're trying to run this big empire. And so from their perspective, the Christians are this impossible fringe group that makes their life difficult. And so that's like the, the difficulty with Rome and, and Christians. Like they just never, they can never mesh because the Christians are just unwilling to do some things, like as they should. The Christians are unwilling to do these things. Rome sees that as totally ridiculous because they, like, they don't care. And to tie to my other time period, that was also kind of the Japanese deal with Christians. But their thing is, hey, we are, we have this very homogenous country. We ask basically everyone to toe the line and you won't do it. And so, and again, their thing is, we don't care if you mean it. Like a really good portrayal um, of, of, you know, the Japanese persecution of Christianity is um, in the novel Silence. Uh, it was a Scorsese movie as well. But the, the novel Silence basically kind of portrays this, this Japanese uh, persecution of Christianity in the early 1600s. And yeah, I think one of their characters actually voices like the, look, keep following Jesus. Like, by all means, we just need you to do this too. But it would just happen to be like, hey, we just need you to trample on this picture of Christ or it was Mary sometimes. Right. And it really is the, you don't have to mean it. And I think that's such a seductive, mm. difficult thing because it's like, hey, look, I can preserve my life. I can preserve the life of, because what they would do is the Japanese realized, what's the point in targeting Christians? We're going to target their leaders. And if we can make their leaders recant, that has such a demoralizing effect on the Christians, which is really shrewd. Yeah. So that's what they would do. And so basically what they would do for pastors or for European missionaries who snuck in is, we're going to kill your church members one by one until you do this in really horrible ways. And so it's like the, I don't have to mean it, and I'll be saving lives. Like That's an impossible situation to be in. I learned reading this book that we've been asking the same daggum questions the whole daggum time the church has been born. We're still asking the same questions that they are trying to figure out. And then lastly, there never really was a heyday or glory days of the church. So everybody looks at the Acts church. They say the Acts church as the shining example. Yeah, and, and it lasted all of 15 seconds. <laughs> People mess it up. Like the church is great for a whole two chapters in Acts, <laughs> and then God starts killing people like real quickly. Like Ananias and so I don't know what chapter is like what chapter five Ananias and Sapphira maybe chapter seven. Or that something? seemed like a harsh punishment. Hey, we're gonna keep a little bit of money secretive. Bam. Yeah. Well, I think God still is like, hey, listen, this thing. <laughs> you know, like when when you're out with your kids and you're like, listen, you guys don't act up. And they're like, okay. And then you get there and they immediately act up and you're like, we just talked about this. Right. That's why I thought with Ananias and Sapphira, it's like, I just started this. I just started this and you're lying and stealing. I'm just going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to kill both of you right now. Yeah, Jack's I understand. Like, I can sympathize with that. <laughs> I mean, when you read it, on it's the how, surface, doesn't it seem pretty harsh? It's it's crazy like that. It's a crazy story because like it's not like they get killed at the same time. Isn't doesn't one of them go first and then the other one comes in? Yeah, it's kind of creepy. You're like, oh yeah, there's my husband laying on the floor dead. I wonder what happened to him. And then like you repeat the same thing. It is a crazy, a crazy story. 
Jack, the big one, is Constantine. I cannot tell if Constantine was good for the church or bad, good for the sake of the gospel or bad. It seems like he turned it from a movement of there's good news, there's a risen Lord, and he turned it into a religion. And I'm not doubting his faith one way or another. There's no way for me to know. But didn't he even like kill his family members? Like, well, right. So in one way, he could say like, yeah. So he's like every other leader at the time. In that regard, it's like, look, was Constantine good or bad? Yes. What I would say, did he turn Christianity from a movement to religion? No. Like that's that's not accurate at all. The, the church was well formed. Again, so to your point, like universal persecutions were rare. I think there were only really three truly universal persecutions in the first 300 years of the church. But but the worst was the last, right before Constantine. That was the worst. Um, it, was, it was a bad one. So, so here, here's one way. You know, people get real cynical and be like, oh, Constantine just told the church what the Bible was going to be. And um, he, you know, conspired and they all just wanted to do whatever he told them. It's like, that is complete garbage. And and one of the reasons it's <laughs> complete garbage is because they had just come through like the the worst persecution the church had ever been through. Maybe it was Decius. And you know, w- within living memory. And so you're telling me that this room full of guys who all of them either were tortured themselves, imprisoned themselves, or knew someone who was tortured and probably killed, suddenly they're like I want to do whatever this guy wants. Like, no, that's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. The church was was well-formed. Basically, what Constantine did is he, he backed the winning horse. He understood that Christianity was culturally ascendant. It had really functionally, in a lot of ways, already kind of taken over. And so he kind of backed the winning horse. And I'm not saying he wasn't sincere. I'm just saying that, you know, it is not the case that he took Christianity from this ragtag group in the catacombs and he transformed them into this empire faith. Like, that's just not true. Christianity always already had a lot of cultural power. And that's one of the reasons why it was targeted for that last persecution. It was, it was you know, easy to blame. Hey, let's blame this group for our problems. You know, one of the regular concerns within Rome was, hey, we are having, we lost this battle or we're having this difficulty because we, we, have, we need to return to the old ways. We need to be more faithful to the old gods. That's what's happened is this new religion has taken over. And that's why we're having all of this misfortune. It's the Christian's fault. And you don't target groups that are fringe and meaningless in that way. You target the groups that you think are actually a threat to you. And Christianity definitely was. Yeah. All right. We'll end with some trivia. Can you name one out of the top three most popular male names in the 1920s? Just one of them. In the 1920s? 1920s. I'm looking at three. Richard. You want to take a guess, Jack? I'm going to say James. Nice. It's Robert, John, and James. Now for the females. This th- I think this list is a little more interesting than the males. Dorothy. There's there's snacks out here, by the way, for the winter. Snacks. You can help I yourself to those snacks. I take a snack whether I win or not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. She said Dorothy. Uh, How do you like that guess, first of all? Do you like Dorothy as a guess? Yeah. No, Dorothy's a pretty good guess. Um, uh, You know, I'm going to go real generic and go with Mary. Very impressed, by the way, with Dorothy. I would have never guessed that. And Mary. So y'all got two out of the three. The third one, Helen. Oh, okay. I can see that. Appreciate you 
joining us. It's good to see an old friend. Good to see you too. So on the personal side, was it deadlifting or squatting that you kill it in? I'd like to say both. I mean, both. I'm, I'm What's a power... your top weights, man? Well, so this was a long time ago. Um, but when I competed last time about 2010 or 11, um, in competition, my squat was around 512 pounds. Um, my bench press was 345, I think. And my deadlift was 540. I got 570 up on my third attempt, but it, but I hitched halfway up and so it didn't end up counting. But they're, they're pretty, pretty decent numbers. I'm, Heck I'm, yeah. I'm right now training and trying to get back into shape to be able to compete again next year sometime. So that's another thing to be praying about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. This to me, because I know you, is a very funny question. In your mind, have you ever lost a debate? Yes, two of them, I think. Two of them. Yeah. And, so, and why would you consider them losses? Um, so one of them was with a guy, I think his name is Jordan Cooper. He's a Lutheran. And we were debating the particularity of the atonement or, or lack thereof. And the reason I say I lost that debate is because I went in wholly unprepared. And yeah. the reason I went in wholly unprepared is because I didn't realize I, I hadn't had time to consume Jordan's material or do a lot of research into Lutheranism. And I just, I didn't go in realizing just how convoluted and insane Lutheran, <laughs> uh, Lutheran, um, Christology is, you know, when it comes to the atonement, it just makes, it, it is full of outright contradictions and contradictions they openly embrace. And, um, I just was not, I didn't know that going into it. And so I was completely, uh, I, I was, I was not on the same level with him throughout the debate. The other one that I, I, I think I lost was on the identity of Israel versus Steve Gregg, a friend of mine. And the reason I think I lost that one is because I don't think I... Steve, Steve Gregg, unlike a lot of people I've debated, really focuses on the biblical data. I go against people that uh, tend to be interested in commentaries and systematics and stuff like that. And, yeah. and I think, so going into that debate with Steve Gregg, I didn't, I didn't think I should focus on the biblical data, given that I'm going against Steve Gregg. I did have biblical data, but that wasn't my sole focus. I also brought in a whole lot of quotes from commentaries and stuff like that. And, and I, I just think I came across as, um, overly reliant on, uh, what other people think than yeah. on the da biblical data itself. Yeah. So th those are the two. Yeah. Gotcha. But we're talking probably a good hundred, right? <laughs> Total debates. Well, getting, I think it's getting up there. I, I don't think I'm, <laughs> I don't think I have anything on James White. He's got well yeah. over a hundred, but I think I'm probably getting close to a, at least I'm over 50, I think. That's cool, man. I know that's fun for you too. So people, most are hearing you for the first time. Give us a little bit of your education, background, kind of your resume. Why Why do we care what Chris Date has to say about the Bible? <laughs> well, you probably shouldn't, to be perfectly honest. But um, I, so I was uh, not raised in an overtly Christian household, and I was an atheist as far back as I can remember, married as, an, as atheists. My wife and I did when uh, we were 20 years old. But then very shortly thereafter, I became became a believer and very quick and, and for several a few years later my wife did too but that's another story and um very quickly after becoming a Christian, I became very passionate about theology and about apologetics and careful biblical interpretation. 
And so I, I got really passionate and involved in that. And for a while, really wished I could go back to school and get a higher education in theology, but didn't think I could because by this point I, I had multiple children and a full-time career, and I just didn't think I'd be able to manage um, both the time and the um, uh, money needed to be able to pursue a higher education. But I learned in 2013, I think it was, that my best friend was getting an, a seminary degree online, and that was when I sort of learned that, oh yeah, getting accredited you know, higher degrees online nowadays is quite possible. And so from 2014 to 2017, I pursued and earned a Bachelor of Science in Religion from the, uh, Liberty uh, Liberty University. I yep. graduated uh, summa cum laude 4.0. Good you. And then went on to do yeah, well, I got to lift myself up in the eyes of your audience so that they they have reason to care what I think. Uh, and then <laughs> that's another way of saying straight A's, right? That's right, straight straight A's. <laughs> and then continue to get straight A's. Lord, uh, thanks to God uh, in at Mass or, or at um, Fuller Theological Seminary, where I got a Master of Arts in Theology. And just for listeners that might be a little concerned when I hear the name Fuller. I didn't go to Fuller because I share sort of a liberal or progressive um, ethos with Fuller. And in fact, that's not true of Fuller anyway. They've got a very diverse faculty, many of whom are very conservative. But but I went to Fuller because I'd already done my bachelor's at Liberty, a very conservative school, and I wanted to stretch myself and not go to an echo chamber and just be told everything I already believe and know. So I went to somewhere like Fuller where they would challenge me um, but I came out the other end every bit as conservative as, as when I started, graduated yep. in 2020. And my hope at some point is to go on to do a PhD in Old Testament or biblical theology. Um, but we haven't gotten there yet. So that's the next step in my academic career, Lord willing. So there you go. Yeah. And listeners, we will, we will get into some discussion and it will be presented in a way that even if you aren't super passionate about theology, it, it will click. You'll know what we're talking about. But if any of these terms kind of fly over your head, we're not going to spend too much time with this. But Chris, for those who this is a very meaningful thing, you would consider yourself in the realm of Calvinism, correct? Like Calvinist predestination. Yeah, that's one of my areas of interest, yes. And then the Bible is inerrant and infallible, correct? Yes, it w absolutely without error in the autographer. And tell me the difference between those two terms. I, I think that I know, but sometimes I get them mixed up. Yeah, so um, depending upon whom you ask, you might get slightly different answers. But my understanding is that inerrant, which is what I believe the Bible is, means that there are no errors in what the authors of Scripture intend to communicate. Um, and those errors, uh, or, or lack thereof anyway, include things like scientific and historical type errors. It's not just that it's inerrant um, in terms of spirituality or something like that. Infallible is a little bit of a lighter term. A little, It carries a little bit less weight in that it permits errors outside of the realm of morals and spirituality. Um, so you, you, if you're an infallibilist, you could believe that there are historical and scientific errors in the, in the scriptures. But when it comes to what the authors of scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote about religion and about morality, those kinds of things, that's where the Bible is infallible. It cannot err in, it cannot fail to properly develop a, a Christian in the way that God would that it do. Gotcha. And a lot of your work 
which we'll be focusing on this. A lot of your work is focused on showing others that Scripture points to conditional immortality, which we would say annihilationism when it comes to the afterlife of those who have not put their faith in Jesus. But before we go into this at all, why is this discussion super important? It's obviously very interesting for you, but why— is it is it important to get this nailed down right? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, so first, let me just say there are many conditionalists and annihilationists who um, uh, probably think this is more important than I think it is. But I do think it's at least somewhat important for two reasons, at least. One is that um, those of us who are absolutely and unwaveringly committed to the authority and the reliability of the Bible, um, and we come, we become convinced, um, even despite not wanting to, as you'll learn about me later in the course of this discussion, probably, um, we become convinced that the Bible does not teach eternal torment in hell, but instead teaches annihilation or conditional immortality. We become convinced of that and we become pariahs in the eyes of, um, the larger church. We, we are kicked out of churches. We lose our jobs, you know, those kinds of things. And, and so I think it, that this topic is an important one to explore. If for no other reason than that there's an opportunity here for the church to become more united, not in the sense of agreeing on the nature of hell, but in the sense of recognizing that this is a non-essential over which we can disagree lovingly and fellowship together and take the gospel arm in arm to a dying world that desperately needs it. And so if I can show people that are listening right now um, that this is a belief that does not merit dividing from me, um, then that's a win right there. And I think it's going to benefit the church. Uh, but the second reason is because actually I'll say there are three reasons. The second of the three is that many, 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 many unbelievers, um, find the doctrine of eternal torment an extremely, um, difficult obstacle to belief. Uh, the, you know, all the horsemen of new atheism, um, uh, they, they all, list the doctrine of eternal torment high on the list of reasons to, that you know that Christianity is a load of baloney, you know, that kind of stuff. And so if you can right. um, go to the unbelieving world with an alternative um, that is at least ostensibly every bit as biblically faithful as the traditional view, then you're re- removing one obstacle to faith in, in the way of many people coming to faith. And then the third thing is that there are many Christians, committed, passionate believers in Christ, whose relationships with God are somewhat interfered with by the doctrine of eternal torment. They they find it difficult to fully trust and fully be vulnerable and transparent um, with a God who they want to believe uh, is absolutely good and just and loving and merciful, so much so that he became a human being and died in their place so that they could be saved. But then they're but then they they're faced with at the same time trying to reconcile that with belief that this God is going to render resurrect unsaved people immortal so they can suffer forever and ever and ever. And a lot of Christians, not me, but a lot of Christians really have difficulty reconciling those things and it interferes with their intimacy with the Lord. And so if we can, if there are Christians who discover that that the Bible teaches something different and it frees them to have a much more passionate and intimate 
love relationship with the Lord, I think that's a win as well. So those are three reasons why yeah. it's at least worth exploring. Yeah, I'm actually surprised to hear that this is still something that ruffles feathers enough to merit heresy and getting kicked out. I really am surprised. I remember the first thing that ever made me question literal flames burning people forever and ever was actually Case for Faith by Lee Strobel when he interviewed a bunch of different professors. One of the discussions was on eternal conscious torment, and this guy proposed that there's eternal separation but there's not literal flames. And he goes into why that doesn't make sense. His position would have been they are alive forever and ever and ever. They just aren't burned forever, but it is tortuous to be separated from God. And I was like, whoa, that was that was the first thing for me. I was like, oh my gosh, there's maybe people don't burn forever. <laughs> and so uh, let me lay out what I think would be three very general categories of thought when it comes to this. And then I will definitely give you a chance to correct or fill in some gaps. But it seems as if, as Christians, you either believe that all people live forever and some will be with Christ in heaven and then some in hell separated from God. And like I just said, many also believe those who are in hell burn forever, but many do not believe in literal flames, just a forever separation. Another category which you would consider yourself in is not all people live forever. Those who do live forever live in perfect heaven. Those who go to hell are destroyed forever, never to exist again. And then a third category would be all people live forever in heaven saved by Jesus. My thought going into this this conversation would be that number one and two are pretty much standard on the table of discussion, whereas number three, most Christians would consider heresy. Is that pretty much a good breakdown? I'm also going to ask you about how purgatory fits into all sure. of this. Yeah, uh, we can get to purgatory, but but yeah, I think that's a pretty um, uh, concise and pretty accurate breakdown. I think the one nuance I'd want to add, well, and actually sure. before I add that nuance, let me just say I, what I really like about the way you've broken it down is that you've focused on the uh, who will live forever. And that's one thing that's really important going to the, into this debate is that we're not talking about what happens when people die. We're talking about what will happen at some point thereafter after when all humankind is resurrected, because some of your listeners may not be aware that the doctrine that, that Christianity doesn't teach that you go to heaven when you die and you remain there forever. It teaches that you maybe you go to heaven when you die if you're a Christian, or you go to Hades when you um, die if you're an unbeliever. But eventually, you come back to life physically, literally in resurrection. And um, the doctrine of eternal torment says you will go on living physically forever as immortal bodies in either the good place or the bad place. And so it really is about who will live forever, not merely who, you know, are you going to suffer forever? So I appreciate that. But as for the nuance that I would add, it's it's in that third category you mentioned, um, which is known as universalism. The nuance I'd want to add is just that there are versions of universalism that deserve to be considered unchristian and off the table. There are versions of universalism that you, that you would just call outright pluralism, where it doesn't matter what you believe or do, you just go, you go to heaven when you die, boom, that's it. Everybody goes there no matter what they believe, etc. But um, but there are some, there are other categories of universalism, other subcategories, I guess, um, that that fully affirm all the essentials of the Christian faith, including that some people who are because they're unsaved when they are resurrected they will go to hell, um, and they will suffer there justly as punishment for their sins. Um, and they will remain there being punished forever, well, ostensibly forever because of their sins. But 
they will always have the opportunity to be saved through faith in Christ. And eventually, given sufficient eons, everybody will turn to Christ in saving faith. And so they believe in salvation by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, there's, you know, the Trinity, there's all that kind of stuff. So there are universalists who I think deserve to be treated as Christians and who should be on and whose view should be on the table. Now I will say, I think their view is utterly without any merit whatsoever in terms of the biblical data, but there's nothing heretical about it. So I I hope that listeners will also be open to treating some universalists as brothers and sisters in Christ, because I think they deserve to be. Gotcha. Because you and I go way back and I have tons of respect and am aware of your intellect when it comes to these (laughs) things. I'm just assuming, you know, all of this, Chris. So whenever, I ask something and you're like, well, this is kind of speculative. Just let us know. But when it comes to the Old Testament, Mm. does it shed any light on this discussion? Like what did Moses, Abraham, Joseph think was going to happen to them when they die? Yeah. So the the Old Testament contains seemingly very little about what will happen after death, um, which is not the only way to frame the question. And I'll come back to that in a moment to, to, to ask the question in maybe a slightly different way. But in terms of what the Old Testament says about what happens after death, it's, it's seemingly very little. There is a pretty strong case to be made that the authors of the Old Testament thought that when you die, you cease to be conscious. Um, you've got things like, uh, you've got pro- authors of Proverbs and of Psalms and uh, Ecclesiastes all seemingly talking about how when you're dead, there's no praising God. You don't know anything. You're, you're just, you're gone. But there are some hints that perhaps that's not the case. And so you've got, for example, the uh, the story of Samuel um, consulting, or sorry, Saul consulting the medium at Endor when she is able to bring up the, uh, ostensibly the dead soul of Samuel to talk to Saul. Um, and there are some other things out, uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament that raise some eyebrows as well. So there's a debate uh, to be had over whether the dead are conscious, according to the Old Testament. Um, but in terms of what happened, but, but in terms of beyond that, like resurrection and heaven and hell and stuff like that, again, it's very little. Um, Daniel 12, one in, uh, Daniel 12, 2 talks about a universal resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. But many scholars, not I, but many scholars think that that was written in like the first century BC or second century BC. So not very old if those scholars are right. But if, but if they're wrong and if Daniel actually wrote the book of Daniel, then, you know, you're, you're pushing that back into five, six, seven hundred years prior to Christ. Uh, you've got Isaiah 25 and 26 talking about the day where one day Yahweh will swallow up death forever. Um, and in Isaiah 26, uh, Isaiah says that, um, his people will one day rise and live, but the, those who oppress them will never rise and live. So you've got this seeming indication in Daniel and in Isaiah that the, um, righteous will rise into everlasting life, and Daniel and, and Isaiah seems to think that the right, the unrighteous will not be a part of the resurrection and live forever. Daniel talks about the unrighteous rising as well, and then people interpret Daniel differently as far as whether the unrighteous will go on living forever. But the point is, apart from Daniel and Isaiah, you've got very little in in terms of picturing a future resurrection and final judgment. 
Did Jesus bring it to the table of discussion? Was he the initial one that started to deliberate afterlife? Stuff? Well, no, I don't think so. And, and that's because of what I said uh, earlier, which is that if you, if you go asking a different question of the Old Testament, you, you might find more data. If you go to the Old Testament asking, what does it say about life after death or something like that? You don't find much. But if you go to the Old Testament asking, what does the Bible say is the, um, is the fate of the unrighteous? Well, then you get loads and loads of biblical data talking about how they will come to an end, they will be no more, they will vanish like smoke, they will waste away, etc., etc., etc. And I should add that some of that biblical data suggests that the unrighteous will finally be destroyed in a way that could only be true after resurrection. Um, because the Old Testament knows about people that die in the lap of luxury and in the esteem of their friends, but who are wicked people that oppress people. And it says, that they're going to be, they're going to receive their due justice. Well, that can't happen unless there's a resurrection and they're judged. By the time you get to Jesus, there's already this anticipation that there will be a judgment that the lost, that the unsaved, uh, unrighteous, however you couch it, will be judged in. Um, and there's also development between the Old and New Testament um, within the Jewish community about what life after death might look like. And so even before Jesus gets on the scene, you've got intertestamental literature, anticipate, intertestamental meaning between the Testaments, uh, intertestamental Jewish literature anticipating resurrection and final judgment and, and hell and things like that. But by the time Jesus gets on the scene, that Jewish view of the, of the afterlife is somewhat mixed. You've got some Jews, a seeming minority of them, who believe that the wicked will suffer forever in hell. Uh, and then you've got a lot of Jews who seemingly, who seem to believe that the unrighteous, the wicked will be destroyed in hell. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he uses all of the language that you would expect from Jewish people who believe that the wicked will be destroyed in hell. All of his teaching is consistent with that. And so too is the teaching of Paul and John and others. Do you know much about the, you just got into it just now. Let's go back to the birth of the church. Jesus ascends, Holy Spirit comes down. In Acts, first of all, am I mistaken to say that the gospel message in Acts, those guys for some reason did not bring eternal punishment into their message. It was just mainly repent, you know, for, for hope, for salvation. But it doesn't seem as if they address any sort of punishment, if I'm not mistaken. Now, that's not to say that Paul doesn't, but in the Acts message, was that a part of their gospel proclamation? Uh, as far as what's recorded, um, hell, final punishment, those kinds of things do not uh, feature in the gospel proclamation, with at least one exception. In Acts 3, this is Peter speaking at Solomon's portico, and he, and he says that Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall, this is uh, Acts 3.23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And he goes on to identify Jesus as that prophet. So you've at least got Peter seemingly believing that um, those who fail to follow Jesus will be destroyed. Of course, that raises the question, what does it mean to be destroyed? And that's certainly something that we can discuss. But apart from that, it does not seem to be very, hell does not seem to feature much in Acts. So do you assume super early on when Jesus's pals and the eyewitnesses were still alive, are you under the assumption that they pretty much 
understood annihilationism to be what Jesus is saving them from, like an actual death, an actual we don't exist anymore. Eternal life means that you exist forever in a perfect place. The opposite of that is not hell. The opposite of that is you don't live. Is that what they were operating by? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you see that throughout the writings of the New Testament. So for example, Jesus's brother, Jude, um, in Jude verse seven, he says, um, Sodom and Gomorrah um, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And we know that he is referencing Genesis 19 when fire fell, falls from heaven onto Sodom and Gomorrah and destroys its inhabitants because Jude is repeating a familiar series of judgment examples um, that feature all throughout the test, the, the literature between the two testaments. Um, and also the parallel in Peter says the same thing, but even more explicitly in 2 Peter 2 6, Peter says that if that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to an extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So here's Jude and Peter both saying that the fiery deaths of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of what awaits the ungodly. And then you've got um, the book of Revelation in the vision that John sees while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. He sees depictions of fiery torment, but these scenes of fiery torment are interpreted by a, by an angel who speaks to John as symbolizing death and destruction. Um, so it's it's all throughout the New Testament. I, I, I and not just the New Testament, but the early church fathers from shortly after the time of the the New Testament was written. They all seem to interpret Jesus and the rest of Scripture as teaching annihilationism. Yeah. So John 3, 16, I'll just read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What happened in church history that caused people to read the word perish and not believe that it really means perish and that it actually meant existing in a spiritual forever death. Like, when did that happen? You and I both admit that is the most prevalent line of thinking in the church. That's what most people believe. What happened? Well, before I answer that, I just, for for listeners that are interested, I just want to point out that John 3.16 follows immediately after John 3.14 and 15. And in those two verses that lead right up to the one that you quoted, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and what he's referring to is this um, statue, this bronze serpent that, that Moses had crafted in the wilderness. And when Israelites were bitten by what would ordinarily be fatal venom from snakes, um, they would they they could look at this bronze statue of a serpent and survive. And so Jesus said, but, but if they failed to look at that bronze serpent, they would die from their snake bites. So Jesus is saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must I be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he's literally a lifesaver in the way that Moses was literally a lifesaver. So we have every reason for understanding perish in John 3.16 to mean perish. I know, imagine that. So, so to answer your question, um, what happened? Well, you're going to get different answers based on the different historical theologians that you speak with. But my impression of the historical data is that for the first 150 years AD, everybody within the church is an annihilationist. But then in the second half of the second century, so 150 to 200 AD, you get converts coming into Christianity from um, pagan, uh, Platonic views, worldviews, um, Manichaeism, Platonism, things like this. Uh, in those views, 
the human uh, soul is indestructible and will exist forever. In fact, Platonists thought that it existed from all eternity past as well. And what happens as these people from these other worldviews come into the church is they, they, they realize that some of the things they believed were wrong because they so clearly um, and unequivocally contradict the biblical data. Uh, for example, a Platonist coming into Christianity is going to see the biblical text that only God is eternal and that humans are created. So they're going to know that the soul of the human wasn't, isn't eternity in the past. But then they're also going to come to language that they're not already intimately familiar with because they're not Jews, language of eternal punishment and eternal fire and, you know, all this language, unquenchable fire. They, they come to that language not familiar with what it means within the Jewish worldview and the Old Testament canon. And so they interpret that language through the lenses they already come to Christianity wearing. The lenses of the soul is indestructible, for example. You know, if you come into the church thinking the soul is indestructible because that's what you used to believe, and then you find phrases you're not already familiar with, eternal punishment, eternal fire, and so forth, it's just going to sound like, oh, well, yeah, no duh, because the soul is indestructible, so it's going to suffer forever. So I so I think what happened is Christians, or people came into the church and became Christians and read the text through lenses, uh, you know, they came with baggage, and we all do that. Um, but they didn't sufficiently take those lenses off. And so they started promoting this uh, alternative to annihilationism that is eternal torment. And it wasn't just eternal torment, by the way. Uh, there are two authors in this time period I'm talking about, um, Tatian and Athenagoras, who teach eternal torment because of their background. But then you've also got people like Clement of Alexandria and Origen of Alexandria coming into the church at that same time who teach universalism. So the way it seems to me is for the first 150 years, the church is teaching annihilationism, but then some people come into the church and start teaching alternatives. And then, and and by the way, for the next couple hundred years, they seem to live perfectly fine in harmony. You don't find any ecumenical creeds that condemn one view over the other. You don't find anything like that. But then Augustine in the fifth uh, century, I think it was, he puts his sort of stamp of approval on the doctrine of eternal torment. He was a former Manichaean who believed that souls are indestructible, and he reads the text through that lens. And because Augustine was such a huge mind and such a huge influence, his stamp of approval on the doctrine of eternal torment ended up making it become the dominant view. And then I think what happens is certain portions of the church start realizing that the doctrine of eternal torment is, an, is a real fear inducer, and it can be a way to sort of keep the masses in line and stuff like that. And so I think it goes, it ends up becoming out of control and anybody who questions it is, is becomes a heretic. And there's a lot more that could be said, but I think that story or something very close to it is what accounts for the rise of what is now the dominant view. Yeah. And as you're talking, I was thinking of something that I think needs to be made very clear that I learned from you when it comes to this perspective. And that is you, you don't have a disbelief in hell. You, you believe that hell is where people go. It's just that hell destroys them forever. Like you don't believe that someone dies. They're put in the grave and they just no longer exist. You actually believe that their soul lives on until it's thrown into the lake of fire. Well, so I, 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 I'm not here necessarily to talk about what I think will happen between death and resurrection, but I do think that the lost, um, ever, all humankind is going to be resurrected and the lost, those who aren't in Christ in faith uh, when they are resurrected will go to hell. Yeah. But it's as you say, hell is not where the, where the flames are just hot enough to provide enough warmth for people to go on living forever. The hell I believe in is so hot that it will burn people to death. Um, 
To put it another way, I don't believe in a God who hates sin just enough to punish people for it forever and ever and ever. I believe in a God who hates sin so much that he will finally and forever eradicate all sin from the universe, and he'll do that to the people in hell. Yeah, and it's interesting once you start to entertain this notion of annihilationism, it really does seem as if some scriptures make way more sense, and I'll just read two of them that I looked up before talking to you. One, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23. And then Matthew 10.28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Destroyed. Mm -hmm. And it's nuts when you think of how, how did we give a different meaning to destroy. Like destroy means destroy. (laughs) So if people are tracking, think along the, and and I'm not trying to convince you of anything, but think along the lines of eternal punishment. When you read that in scripture, it means that you are eternally punished by being gone forever. So eternal punishment, you're dead forever. Yeah. Or or think of it this way. The, The punishment is not being alive anymore. So if you are not alive anymore and you remain that way forever, then it is an eternal punishment. Um, the, the way I like to think about it is the death penalty. If, if you go, if, if a capital, like a serial murderer were sent to the electric chair and, and were killed in the electric chair, but then moments later gasped back to life. And this, this is a real thing. It's called Lazarus syndrome. Uh, somebody's killed and then moments later they come back to life. If that were to happen, no government would let that criminal go free. I mean, after, but, but why? After all, they died. They received their death penalty, right? No, because the death penalty is not dying. The death penalty is the result of dying. It's being dead. So if you're dead forever, then it's an eternal punishment. And I think that is, like you said, it's what makes the most sense of the biblical data for sure. So let me throw two verses at you that I'm sure you've confronted before and easy lobs for you to <laughs> defend. And yeah, and then I would love for you to mention one or two more that I'm missing. Sure. And these may not, these may be far from the best examples, but Mark 9 48, Jesus says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. How do you address that? This is actually the verse that first got me thinking that perhaps I might have been wrong about hell back when I still believed in eternal torment. Um, and the reason is because I just. Oh, really? This, this actually made you question eternal consciousness. But not the text itself, but what I discovered about it. So, so, you know, you come to this text already believing in eternal torment, and you're like, yeah, yeah, uh, the the worm does not die somehow means that the wicked suffer forever in hell, obviously. (laughs) You know, and the fire is not quenched must mean (laughs) that the the fire never dies out. God always addresses us as worms. Right, exactly. So (laughs) it's like so obvious. But then what I learned from a friend of mine at the time, uh, a friend now as well, but what I learned is that Jesus is not making this language up on his own. This is a quote. And what Isaiah, right? It's right. And from Isaiah 66, 24. And this is how Isaiah 66, 24 reads. And they, that is the righteous, shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. So what's going on here, and and you can see this all the way back in verse 15 of Isaiah 66, where God says he's going to come in fire and he's going to slay many people, the, the wicked. And so you've got this scene in which God has slain, killed all of his enemies, and the righteous remain, and they see these slain bodies, these these bodies, these corpses of God's 
slain enemies and their worm, the maggot that eats them, their corruption will not die. So they won't, there will be nothing that stops the, their degradation process of these corpses, which is the same thing um, as what is said with their fire shall not be quenched. It's, it means the fire that is burning these corpses up will not be extinguished. So what happens if you can't extinguish a fire? Well, it finishes burning up what it's burning up. Uh, similarly, the language of their worm not dying, this is very similar to what Jeremiah 7 where God promises that one day um, the dead bodies of God's enemies will be food for the birds of the sky and no one will be able to frighten the birds away. What is the picture there? The picture is these birds won't be prevented from fully eating the, the bodies of God's enemies. So when I realized that this is a picture of God killing his enemies and their bodies being ingloriously devoured by worms and by fire, then I realize that when Jesus quotes it, maybe he actually means it in the way that it originally meant and not in some other meaning that he gives no indication of. So yeah, that's, that's what first got me thinking. And, and, and this language of unquenchable fire, by the way, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the language of a fire that can't be put out and so completely devours. And that's why you see, for example, um, in Matthew 3, 12, John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, says that his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff, the weeds representing the wicked, Jesus will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, what's important about this is not only that it uses the phrase unquenchable fire, just like we read in Mark 9, but it also likens the wicked to weeds that burn up in fire. And then, and he uses the word for burn, not kayo, which is Greek for just burn. He uses a Greek word, katakayo, which means to completely burn up, to reduce to ashes. So by John the Baptist's own words in Matthew 3.12, we see that what unquenchable fire does is it completely devours, it completely burns up. And that's just all throughout the whole Bible. So, All right, Revelation 14.11, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be, this one actually does hint at more, I think, of, oh, wow, this is forever, huh? There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. So no rest. It seems like rest would be being dead. So why aren't they getting rest, Chris? <laughs> well, so first of all, if you're not only dead, but you also have ceased to be a conscious being, then no, you're not resting, but you're, you're not anything at all. So <laughs> you're not, you're not getting rest. You're, you're, you're the last thing that you even experience is absolute torment. But, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. So before we answer this question, we need to, we need to make sure we understand what's going on in the book of Revelation. This is not a straightforward historical account of the future. It's not like uh, there was a camera in the future that recorded it, and then the recording was sent back in time to John, who like popped a Blu-ray disc into a player and started watching right. it on a TV. This is highly symbolic apocalyptic imagery. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament to the dreams that uh, Pharaoh has, that Joseph interprets, the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has, that Daniel interprets, Daniel's own visions. These kinds of future foretelling visions all throughout the Old and New Testaments tell the future by means of symbols. 
by imagery. So then the question becomes not what is happening in this text, uh, because yeah, the text is pretty straightforward. What is happening in the text, in the picture, the symbols of the text is eternal torment. Um, and you see that in Revelation 20 as well. The, but the question isn't what is the imagery portraying or depicting? The question that matters is what does that portrayal symbolize in reality, right? You've got, this is this, remember, this is the same book where John sees, uh, golden bowl full of incense, and he says that those bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints, right? He's, they're symbols representing things. So the question is, what is symbolized by what's going on here in Revelation 14? And there's at least three symbols that kind of come together. Um, you mentioned the torment rising forever, but in the verses leading up to that, you've also got drinking the wine of God's wrath, and you've also got being tormented with fire and sulfur. And all three of those symbols appear again in this very same book. Um, so maybe we should take a look at where what they mean there. And what we find is that in Revelation 18, there's this uh, another symbol, this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute, mystery Babylon, riding on the back of the beast. And the text in Revelation 18 um, has her drinking God's wrath. That's, ba- that's in verse 6 of Revelation 18. She's tormented in fire. Um, you see that in multiple places in Revelation 18. And at the beginning of Revelation 19, a hallelujah chorus cries out, may the smoke from her rise forever and ever. So you've got all three symbols, the smoke rising from torment forever, you've got torment and fire, and you've got drinking God's wrath. But what does this symbolism mean? Well, in Revelation 18, verse 21, a mighty angel takes up a stone and throws it into the sea and says, so will Babylon, the great city that that harlot represents, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So this symbolism, which, yeah, depicts ongoing fiery torment, what it symbolizes is the overthrow, the destruction of a city and the deaths of her inhabitants. So if those symbols converge to mean that in Revelation 18 and 19, why would they converge to mean something entirely different in Revelation 14? That would make no sense. So if we just simply apply the rules of of hermeneutics, you know, let the same book interpret itself within the same genre of literature, we see Revelation 14 doesn't only challenge, uh, it, it not only fails to challenge annihilationism or conditional immortality, it actually actively teaches our view and challenges eternal torment. Um, yeah. And that's what I found, by the way, of all the texts that uh, are typically cited in support of eternal torment is they prove to be better support from my view. Yeah. And I think I omitted the big one. And you tell me if this is the big one. Luke 16, Lazarus (laughs) and the rich man. I've heard you address this on your Rethinking Hell podcast, but the rich guy in hell, in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham in the distance and Lazarus in his lap. He called out, Father Abraham, mercy, have mercy. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you got the good things and Lazarus, the bad things. It's not like that here. Here he's consoled and you're tormented. Besides in all these matters, there is a huge chasm set between us so that no one can go from us to you, even if he wanted to, nor can anyone cross over from you to us. So it seems like this dude is being tortured forever. Well, and it is a parable. 
Well, or maybe not. I mean, there, there are many, there are many Christians who believe that the fact that Jesus names Lazarus, um, is an indication. And there, there's nobody named in any other parables. So there are plenty of Christians who think this is just a straightforward historical account. Gotcha. But even then, it doesn't challenge my view. And the reason is because I think that you misquoted verse 23. Um, depending yeah. upon what translation, what translation were you reading from? The message. Yeah. So I, I would avoid the message at all costs. <laughs> uh, at the beginning of verse 23, Three. That was Chris's nice way. He's, you're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no. Actually, I've, I've, Rest I've, in peace, Eugene. I've softened up to uh, uh, to the message a little bit. I, I don't think anybody should use it as their primary text, but as a supplementary text, to, you know, to supplement other actual good translations, right. it's not bad. Um, but, but no. The, the reason I bring up verse 23 is because the word there isn't hell. It's not Gehenna. It's not Lake of Fire or anything like that. It's Hades. This is Hades is the New Testament Greek equivalent to the Old Testament Sheol, which is the place of the dead. It's where you go when you die. Uh, and this whole scene is taking place there. You can see that because verse 22 says the rich man was buried, right? The, 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 there's no mention here of resurrection. This is taking place while their dead bodies have, are, are in the grave. Right. Um, you've also got the fact that Hades is specifically mentioned, but there's one other thing. Notice that in verse 28, the, the rich man says, I have five brothers who are blissfully unaware of their impending doom. Please go to them and warn them. But that can't happen in hell. Right. Hell begins at the resurrection. So everybody is, is facing the throne of judgment. There's nobody going about their life blissfully unaware of what's about to happen to them. So even if we take this as a literal historical story of something that actually happens, it's happening between death and resurrection. Revelation is explicit. One day Hades will be emptied of its dead. And Hades itself will be thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed. So, um, no, this is not a challenge to annihilationism, even if it teaches that there is consciousness after death for a long period of time. That long period of time is the time between death and resurrection. It has nothing to do with hell at all. And, and by the way, I want to add one more thing just in passing. In, yep. in um, A lot of times when we annihilationists uh, point out that the phrase eternal life, which features all throughout the New Testament, um, is only ever applied to believers. Um, eternal torment believers will say, yeah, but the word for life there is zoe, which doesn't just mean physical life. It's like an abundant kind of spiritual life. But I just want to point out that in verse 25, the, um, Abraham is talking to the rich man and tells the rich man that in your lifetime, you received your good things. Guess what Greek word is lifetime? That? Zoe, that very same word that features an eternal life. So the, the, Zoe does not mean some kind of special, you know, um, abundant quality of spiritual life. It's just life. It's a, it's the same word that Peter or that Paul uses at the Areopagus when he says that God gave to all mankind life, Zoe, breath, and everything. It just means life. So how interesting it is that the Bible over and over again says that eternal life is coming to the to the saved but not the lost. What then would we expect is coming to the lost? Probably not living forever. <laughs> yeah. All right. Wrapping this thing up, a sure. couple more questions. Do you think we'll say Jennifer is married to Johnny? If Johnny dies and is annihilated, does Jennifer remember her husband throughout <laughs> all eternity? If you had to guess. Yeah, I think so. Because our, our identity, our, our personality, who it is that we are at our core is indelibly shaped by our relationships, by our experiences. And I think that if God were to, if, if it were even possible for God to wipe a, a, a person of, 
years and years of memories about somebody, even if that were possible, the result would be somebody who isn't the person that that you started out with. They'd be so radically fundamentally changed. I think that this, uh, this, uh, idea of forgetting lost loved ones in, in, in heaven, I, I think, um, is, is just implausible. But here's what I will say. Um, if I, if I go to heaven after I'm resurrected and get granted eternal life and I reflect on loved ones that, that are lost and, and, you know, were sent to hell instead of came to heaven with me. If I think that those lost loved ones are suffering forever and ever and ever while I'm enjoying the bliss of heaven forever and ever, that's going to, it seems like that's going to be tough for me to not think about, not dwell on. You know, I don't know how I'm going to enjoy the bliss of heaven knowing that my lost loved ones are at that very same moment writhing in agony or or suffering in misery in hell. But what if a million years after the resurrection, I am enjoying these fond memories I had of my loved one who was lost, but who a million years ago was finally killed? Well, Lots of us have lost loved ones and we grieve and we mourn, but eventually we're able to move on and experience a good, happy, joyous life. Well, so if my lost loved ones are justly and rightly executed on the day of judgment for their, for their sins of which they refuse to repent, um, I will mourn and grieve for a while, but eventually in heaven, I'll have moved on and, and I'll have fond memories of them. But I won't be racked with worry about how miserable they are in hell at that moment because they died a million years ago. So I, yeah. so I think that annihilationism actually solves that problem in a much better way than any proposal by eternal torment advocates. I was thinking how your point of view seems to paint God in a more merciful light, but that's only because I grew up <laughs> believing in eternal conscious torment. And when you compare the two, it seems as if, oh, wow, God, that's a lot more merciful. He's basically putting people out of their misery. But if there's no context for believing in eternal suffering, this this isn't necessarily mercy would you think so well, theologically is god having mercy no i think that's a great point because you know if if uh imagine that you've got a serial um killer who's killed dozens and they're facing either life in prison or capital punishment and imagine they uh, they they uh, prescribe capital punishment and somebody says oh they're showing him mercy no, it's the opposite. They're 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 inflicting the worst imaginable penalty. So no, I, I don't I don't think that um, annihilation is mercy. But what I will say is that it's at least possible. I think that it's that it's not either or. That it's both and. It could be a just penalty, a severe penalty, and yet at the same time be an expression of mercy because. Somebody who is unrepentant of their sin and is allowed to go on living in unrepentant sin for indefinitely, that person is going to have a miserable life and, and possibly inflict misery on others. So killing that person as the just penalty for their sins can be a just severe penalty, but at the same time be a way of mercifully uh, preventing this person from having to go on living um, such a miserable life for an, a, a very long period of time. Now, that's not my view. I, I believe it is just simply a just and severe penalty, and, and, I, and I actually find it to be a more terrifying fate than living forever in misery. But I'm in a minority that, there. That, 
That's fine. Yeah, you and I just, uh, I don't get that. That's fine, but there are plenty of us. I mean, even Augustine himself in, in his, in his poem, The City of God said that if you were to offer, um, an unrepentant criminal the choice between living forever in Hades or being annihilated, they would joyfully choose living forever in Hades. Um, the, 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 the thought of ceasing to be altogether is terrifying to many of us and even more terrifying than being exiled from the city of God forever. But the point is just to say, I don't see it as merciful, but I think somebody could see it as mercy and as severe and just penalty at the same time. Yeah. If someone wants to do, thank you so much, yeah. Chris, by the way, and it was great seeing you again. You if too. somebody wants to do some deeper reading, I know Edward Fudge is a good go-to. What, what would be some other resources? Your podcast, Rethinking Hell, I'll put the website on uh, your website, but what are some outlets that people can read more on this point of view? Yeah, so RethinkingHell.com is the website, and I appreciate you putting the link in the in the um, podcast notes. Uh, we're, we're a podcast that you can find in you know iTunes and stuff like that. We also have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash rethinking hell. Um, we've also published two books. So, um, you can find a book called Rethinking Hell, um, and another book called A Consuming Passion. Um, and these are both books that, um, listeners might find helpful. Uh, and then the one thing that I'll encourage, uh, listeners to keep an eye on is my personal website, chrisdate.info, because I am currently working on a two views book with Paul Copan. Um, for IVP Academic. And I think it's going to be a real game changer in the larger genre of multi-view literature because what we're actually doing is bringing uh, bringing six scholars on each of the two sides of this debate, the Eternal Torment side and the Annihilation side, um, six scholars representing a different discipline each, biblical theology, exegesis, systematic theology, etc. Um, and they're going to go toe-to-toe within their own discipline. And, and so I'm really excited about it. Uh, it'll probably be published like in 2025 is what I'm guessing. But if people keep an eye on my website, chrisdate.info, not only will they find tons of debates and presentations I've done on this topic, but they'll also be able to stay, um, keep an eye on my website for when this book ends up becoming available. And I think that'll be really helpful for listeners as well. Perfect. Thanks for listening. There's a link in the show notes to our podcast Facebook page where we talk about these episodes and share some behind the scenes information, including guests we're booking. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joey asking Jack to come on the podcast and breach this topic is liking to asking Josh and Katie Walters if they want to be parents. (laughs) Or asking Rocky if he wants a piece of Drago. I have no idea what that is. (laughs) It's like asking young parents if they want free babysitting. (laughs) Or Charlestonians if they want people to stop moving here. Asking Scooby if he wants Scooby snacks or real Southerners if they want boiled peanuts or butter in their grits. Making them an example of what is going to... (laughs) Sorry, didn't mean to sneeze right in the middle of of reading that. Heck yeah, dude.